Thank you, Isaac. Good morning, everybody. Wow, jeez. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Wake up, people. The uh, turkey should have made it through your system by now. You should be okay. The snow uh, came just on cue as we announced um, services, Christmas services here at Menomos Mills Community Church. Um, five of them. Uh, there'll be uh, more than 1,000 seats available, and so we really want you to think about who you can invite this Christmas season uh, out here. And, and actually, you'll see when, as we, we work into the Christmas theme over the next few weeks, we're actually tying it a little bit to what's going on in the world today. So uh, I think it's a, it's a better Christmas than ever. And most people, most of your friends and neighbors are open to the things of God in these next few weeks more than they are the other 52 two weeks a year. So I really just want to encourage you to think about bringing somebody out with you. Now, the story is told, and I believe this to be a true story, that the great Albert Einstein was on a train. He was from Jersey, and he was leaving Princeton Junction, and he was heading north. When the conductor came back to his seat, I used to take the train, and, you know, they come back with their little punchers. Einstein couldn't find his ticket. He searched through all of his pockets. He looked in his briefcase, and he got exceedingly disturbed is the description. And so the conductor tried to confront him. I mean, everybody, you know, the hair and all the rest, he's not too hard to pick out. Dr. Einstein, don't worry about the ticket. I know who you are. You don't need to present a ticket to me. I trust that you purchased one. About 20 minutes later, the conductor comes back down the aisle, as they usually do, and he sees Einstein, and Einstein's still searching wildly for the misplaced ticket. And so the conductor comes back up to reassure him, Dr. Einstein, please don't worry about the ticket. I know who you are. And Einstein stood and said in a gruff voice, Young man, I know who I am, but I'm trying to find my ticket because I want to know where I'm going. Interesting. I know who I am, but I want to know where I'm going. Welcome to the final week of our series, Creed. We began studying in September um, the Apostles' Creed. We've been working through in some detail the most ancient statement of the Christian faith. And over all these weeks, we've looked at the who's, who God is. Remember that he's God Almighty, but he's also God the Father and why those two things matter. We've looked at who Jesus is, the only Son of God and our Lord. We worked our way through an understanding of the person of the Holy Spirit, the concept of a triune God, right? A God who is three in persons, but one in essence. We even looked at who the church the communion of saints is, and, and how it doesn't exist unless there's a forgiveness of sins. We've seen who we are, how the creed addresses us. We're introduced in the creed, not as good people who sometimes screw up and just need to try harder or do better, but as sinners, as, as, as people who need a savior. After all these weeks, we now know who all of the players are. We know who we are. But it's not enough to know who you are. You have to know where you're going. And so we're going to do it together one last time. I'm going to ask you to join me, and we are going to recite the Apostles' Creed together. If you're watching online, this is the time to get up off your couch and do it along with us. Here we go. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, 
the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Grab a seat. I hope uh, I, I didn't go to church all that much growing up, but I must have gone enough that that has just always been in my head and I've been able to recite it um, from memory for as long as I can remember. I hope that when this is over, some of that uh, will be true for all of you. The creed ends, kind of interesting, with the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Or, as Paul and, and the writers of the Bible relate it, the creed ends with our hope. One great shared Christian hope, and that is where we're going. For Paul and the writers of the Bible, hope, it wasn't just like a kind of a wish. I hope the Dallas Cowboys win the Super Bowl. I hope the Mets win the World Series. But those, as we all know, are wishes. I mean, if everything worked out just right, it might happen. But the truth is, it probably will not happen. This is my continued misplaced hope, actually. Story is told of a, of a wife who had just had it with her husband. And one day, in a fit of rage, she packed his bags and told him to get out. And as he was walking out the door, the wife yelled to him her misplaced hopes. She said, I hope you find nothing but misery and loneliness out there. I hope you never again enjoy a home-cooked meal. And I hope you die a long, slow, painful death. At which the husband turned around and said, so you want me to stay? <laughs> Don't, you can't boo the pastor. <laughs> See, super important question for this Thanksgiving weekend and as we wrap up this foundational series, the creed ends in hope. And so the question is this, where is your hope placed? What is, what is it that you hope for? Here's a closely related question. Who have you placed your hope in? Now, psychologists have known this for a long time. It's been studied and written about for decades. Hope is likely the most powerful human emotion, maybe more powerful than love. This week, I was reading from, from Man's Search for Meaning by a guy named Viktor Frankl. He was an Austrian neurologist. He's also a Nazi camp survivor, um, concentration camp survivor. And the essay spoke of the absolute brutality of the Nazi death camps. In fact, it started with a picture of the, uh, the, picture of the entrance of the Auschwitz death camp. And, and underneath it, they had written in this essay the famous words from Dante's Inferno, which were pictured, Dante pictures over the gates of hell. Anybody remember, maybe from your high school or college literature class, what Dante pictured written over the gates of hell? Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. See, the irony of Frankel's testimony, you can check this out, it's really fascinating, is what he would say allowed him to survive while so many other people in the camp died, he never lost hope. The creed does not leave us in hell. The creed brings us to hope. And hope underlies everything we do. It really does. Hope, actually, right now, today, when you leave here, it will determine what you do for the rest of your day. It determines what you live for, how you spend your time and your money. How many of you went absolutely crazy this week preparing for Thanksgiving? I know we did. Truth is, I didn't do all that much. I know that Joan did, but we flew Caroline home from college just for four days. That's not cheap. 
We bought and cooked two turkeys, made enough food to feed the 20 or so people that showed up for dinner. We even took out the good dishes. My mother-in-law spent the week polishing the silver tableware. And why? For a dinner? Well, not just the dinner. We did it. Why? Because we had hope that we could provide for our family a, a memorable and a meaningful, a perfect Thanksgiving. That's why you did it, too, because you had hopes. How many of you in this crazy week still managed to take your kids to basketball or hockey or wrestling or band practice? Why? Because there's some hope that underlied that. Hope that they're going to find something they're good at or they'll make friends. Hope that the sport or band keeps them out of trouble. Hope that they'll be the star of their sports and some of their sports glory might wash over you a bit because you had so little of it in your own life and now you're driving them mercilessly to compete just so you can vicariously live through their accomplishments. That's just me, actually. But that's why so many of us get up so early all these mornings and drive our kids to where we're, we're driving them. There's some hope there. Some of us are, are paying for private lessons or private tutors. We have the highest tax rates in the country. Our schools are the best schools in the country. And why do we do that? Well, we're just hoping they get a scholarship. I have paid more in private sporting lessons than I likely have for years of tuition. Why do we go on dating websites, put up filtered pictures, meet strangers for awkward drinks? Why would we put up with that? Because we hope we meet somebody. This is the power of hope. It's what it does. And importantly, when you get this, it's super important you get this. This is why the creed ends with it. This is how misplaced hope can be so devastating and dis disabling in your life. I mean, why do you think Jesus talked about money so much? Because money is where so many of us place our hope. I mean, I know that that's what competes for my, my heart and my hope is, is money. That if I have enough of it, well, then I would have peace. I could relax. Then I'd have some strength and freedom and protection. But Jesus keeps warning us over and over, no, no, don't place your hope there. That's a bad idea. Did anybody see what happened on the stock market Friday? Because of a rumor of a COVID variant, right? See, what you hope for, who you hope in, Christian or non-Christian, this is not a Christian thing. This is a human being thing. Hope is the engine that makes you go. It is, in many ways, also the person or the thing that you ultimately serve. Who you hope in ultimately is your master. It's who you're giving yourself to. Misplaced hope, well, misplaced hope is going to make you do some pretty stupid things. Serve some pretty stupid masters. And this is why the creed ends with this concept because it's that important i believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting the creed ends with what the writers of the bible say is to be the great shared hope the apostle paul jesus must have told him more about this hope than anybody else because paul writes about it so thoroughly and this morning i'm going to share a lot of scripture with you why well because as paul told the thessalonians he were, in Thessalonica, the people were watching their friends die. And they're, they're saying, I don't understand. I thought if we believed in Jesus, we weren't going to die. I don't understand. We're suffering. We're being persecuted. My friends got killed for Christ. I don't understand. I'm losing hope. And so Paul writes to them. He goes, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. 
So he goes on to explain to those suffering persecution and hardships in, in the church in Rome. Here's what he wrote to them. He goes, listen, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Here it comes. In hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay. This is why we're in the condition we're in. And brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Paul, 2,000 years before clinical psychologists discovered it and Viktor Frankl experienced it, he says that the way through present sufferings in this world is the hope that everything in all of creation, which is now subject to frustration because of sin and death and dysfunction, the way through all of that is to understand is that it's going away. It's going to stop. All of history before Jesus Christ it was kind of the common understanding that, that, the, that time and, and experience was just kind of cyclical, that the world wasn't going anywhere. Jesus comes on the scene and says, no, 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 this is going somewhere. This is going to end, and something new is going to begin. All of creation is going to be set free, but it's not just creation. Paul goes on and he says, more specifically, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, right? Just picture it outside. Oh, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have had the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, as is what I do every morning. Like, you know, I've got the old man thing. Every time I sit down, I can't sit down without making a noise, right? Oh, I get up in the morning. Oh, right? We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, here it comes, and the redemption of our bodies. This is what the creed is affirming. See, our hope is not pie in the sky and the by and by. Our hope is not the float on of clouds with wings and, and a harp. That is not what the scriptures teach. Our bodies, our physical bodies, will be redeemed. In fact, listen to how Paul goes on. He says, for this, in this hope that our bodies are going to be redeemed, restored, resurrected, it's this hope that saves us. And then he goes on to describe what he means when he says hope. He goes, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we don't yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now that word in the Greek, hope, it's this word elpis, which is not the kind of hope for I have for the Mets, right? When the scriptures talk about hope, this is what the Greek word means for it. Elpis means an expectation for what is sure and certain. Remember when I was a kid and my, my mom, when I mess up, my mom would say, wait till your father comes home. I waited with Elpis, <laughs> right? A certainty about the expectation. This is biblical hope. What is our hope? We have a certainty, we have an expectation that all of creation, including our own bodies, will be rescued from death, resurrected from the grave, redeemed and restored. We are certain of it. And because we're certain of it, that means that we, we can now wait patiently for it. 
Now, I know the year is 2021, and the modern mind and the concept of bodily resurrection, it seems, look, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I try to keep it real. It seems a bit hocus-pocusy, right? And I get that. In fact, you don't have to year, live in the year 2021 to find the concept of a bodily resurrection kind of outlandish. So if you're sitting there this morning going, you know, John, that's a little far-fetched. That's a little hard to believe. Paul, when he stood in the Theropagus in Athens, he introduced to the Greeks the idea of a bodily resurrection. This idea did not exist before Jesus. And so he stands before all the Greeks and all of their pantheon of gods, and he starts talking to them about our coming day of resurrection. Jesus was resurrected, and so can we be resurrected, bodily resurrected. And here's how Luke recorded their response. He said, when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. They laughed in contempt, as if the idea was beneath their educated consideration. But I, I, I just have to ask you the simplest of questions regarding this idea. I mean, do you ever just step back and go, well, wait a minute, there's something going on here. I'm in this room. I'm breathing this air. I got here somehow, right? I'm part of a universe that is larger than what I could imagine. It's actually, scientists are, are starting to understand, it's larger than what will ever be discovered. And yet within that massive creation that is expanding and is undiscoverable, here you sit in your smallness, which they have still not been able to plumb the depths of. This morning as you sit there, you have somewhere between 35 and 75 trillion cells in you. And as we sit here, every one of those cells is dying and being renewed. In fact, you can look this up. The cells that are in your body right now, sometime in the next seven and a half years, will be completely renewed and restored. You become a new creature every seven to seven and a half years. Now, if God can do all that, while you're sitting around eating turkey and watching the Cowboys lose, right? Why couldn't he do it again? And if Jesus walked around telling people that he was going to be crucified, killed, buried, and that he would walk out of the grave, and he did it, if Jesus pulled off that promise, why can't you believe that he would pull off this one? Yesterday, I was with a small group of friends at a, at a gathering of family members as they... they, they spread the ashes of someone in their family. And an older friend of mine came up to me right afterward. He said, it was, you know, it's kind of ironic. We're spreading these ashes as we're talking about resurrection at church today. And he said, I'm spending, he was an older gentleman. He said, I'm spending a lot of time right now reading 1 Corinthians 15. And why? Because that's where Paul goes into the most detail about this promise. What's going to happen to you? Here's, here's what Paul told the church in Corinth about this hope. He said, he starts out with this important little thing. He goes, if it's only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if, if, everything in this, if you believe everything in the creed up until this point, but you go, you know, that one, that one's a little hard to believe. I don't really buy that last sentence. Paul's going, look, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, you're a fool. If there's no life after death, if there's no resurrection of the body, if there's no life after uh, everlasting, and you're living this life in the radical ways that Jesus asked us to live it, and again, go back and read what he asks us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. If you live that kind of self-sacrificing life of service, and there's no eternal life, you're an idiot. You should be pitied. 
If there's no eternal reward or benefit for your suffering, at some level, God is just cruel. But, I love this, but, and the but here is like, this is not just some crazy idea. Here's, here's, the, here's the why. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits. Some of you know the concept of first fruits. They would have been familiar with it. Israel was commanded to offer to God not what was left over at the end of the harvest season, but the first crops of the season. They were not only considered to be the best and the healthiest of the fruit, but they were also like before I had more fruit and I was certain I was going to get more fruit, I took the first fruits and I gave it to God and it built my trust up that because I gave them the first fruits that God would, would add to it, right? That there would be more. Jesus is the first fruit of resurrection of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as an Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Don't you see, Jesus' resurrection, it's just a deposit on yours. It's the beginning of the promise of God. Paul goes, look, you all, if you you want to be certain of it, I can show you how certain it is. It's as certain as the fact that you're going to die. You all inherited a sinful, broken nature from Adam. Therefore, you all die. But through the Holy Spirit of God, what God has placed in us, now we will all live. Just like Adam, we die. Just like Jesus, you will be resurrected if you believe. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, and I get this question a lot, well, In the resurrection, what will my body be like? Will I be like 20-year-old me, or 30-year-old me, or 50-year-old me, or 70-year-old me, right? You ever wonder that? What would you pick? What's like the peak age that you would pick? Well, it's it's an interesting question. You're not the first to ask it. In fact, here's what Paul says. He goes, but someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? See, you're not alone. But here's the one problem. You're not all that smart either because Paul's next words are, how foolish. What a stupid question. Remember when you were a kid, the teacher said, don't be afraid to ask a question. There's no stupid questions in this classroom. Paul goes, I disagree. This is a dumb question. And here's why. You'll never have to ask this question again. What you sow, right, think of a farmer, does not come to life unless it dies. And when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just the seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. Right? Paul says, when when you plant an apple seed, the apple seed doesn't look like the tree that will come forth. It's in there, but it's not yet complete. But God gives it a body as he's determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another, birds another, fish another. Let me just stop right there. This is breaking news. You are not going to be reincarnated as a dog. I promise you. And, and your relatives are not coming to you in the form of a butterfly. That might be comforting. I understand that. And that, great. But it's not true. He, he goes on. He goes, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly body is one kind. The splendor of the earthly body is another. So these bodies, the ones that you and I are in now, they will be sown into the ground and raised as heavenly bodies. And then he describes what that looks like. He goes, so 
so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. See, you're not going to be 20 or 50 or 70. You are going to be brand new imperishable, glorious, and powerful. You were never any of those things on your best day. In the resurrection, you will be that way every single day. So it is written, Paul said, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual didn't come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven as was the earthly man. So those who are of the earth, right, in our earthly bodies, are like Adam, and as, it, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. Here comes what the interesting part. Just as we have been born in the image of the earthly man, that's why we, we are the way we are now, we're like Adam, so we will be, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. In your resurrected body, on a brand new earth, you will bear the images of Jesus' resurrected body. If you want to understand what your resurrected body would look like, there is a first fruit that you can see already. You can understand, you can get just a glimpse of what it will be like, the new you. Now, what do we know about Jesus' resurrected body? Well, we know that after his death, if you remember, the disciples are scared to death, right? They're all holed up in, in this room. The doors are locked as they're, as they're in fear. They're behind these closed doors, and somehow Jesus passes through the door or the wall and stands among them. So there will be some differences in how our bodies work in the world to come. Yet, Jesus on many occasions still sits with them and eats food. So you will likely still have a hunger and appreciation for food in the world to come you will still love a good cheeseburger in the kingdom of God. Jesus' natural body, which died at Calvary, is raised and transformed into a spiritual body. Now, it was new enough, think about this, it was new enough that those who knew him best at first didn't recognize him. Remember the women that came to the well? They see Jesus in the garden. Anybody remember what they think he, who they think he is? They think he's a gardener, which is super interesting, right? Because the first Adam actually was a gardener. And the last Adam gets mistaken for one. And so they think he's a gardener. The disciples on their road to Emmaus, they at first, Jesus comes up and walks with them for a while, and they don't recognize him at first either. But something over time helps them to see who he is. That will be our story too. We will know each other in heaven. Our bodies will be like Jesus's. In some ways, similar enough to be recognized, but so much better than what got planted in the ground. The other day, I had uh, the privilege um, to meet with a dear woman that is part of our extended church family, and she's been given a tough diagnosis, one nobody wants. From an earthly perspective, her doctors have given her very little time and even less hope. And she is a woman, and, and, and not an elderly woman, she's a woman of great and profound faith. Her faith as I sat and prayed with her was inspiring to me. 
But she's also honest because she's a human being. She said, I'm also a little scared. I would be too. But because of this hope, this is how important this is, because of this hope, I was able to sit there with her and pray with her, along with some of the other elders in her church, in fact, all of the elders in her church, and I was able to look her right in the eye and say, you're not going to die. I'm telling you. In fact, I'm here to tell you. You're, if, if you're a follower of Christ, you are not going to die. That is not what's coming for you. I promise you. In fact, it's not my promise, it's Jesus' promise. My promise is worthless. Sure, your earthly bodies might perish. It's perishable. We all have like a best-on date stamped on us somewhere. Your personhood, though, your essence is not going anywhere. Listen to me. I promise you, this is our hope. You're not going to die. So stop living like that. That's what Paul's getting at over and over. So stop living like that. See, that's what Paul tried to convince the Corinthians of. Listen to his conclusion, having explained now what's coming for all that would believe, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Paul goes, I declare to you, which sounds an awful like I'm promising you. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I'm going to tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to me. I am declaring to you this morning, death is dead. It has no hold on you. It's no more. Jesus laughs at it. He made a mockery of it. It has no hold on you. You don't need a bucket list. You're not going anywhere. Jesus' resurrection was the first fruit. We will be the second. If you trust and believe that Jesus is who he said he is, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus proved it was true. And so, I love how Paul concluded. He goes, therefore, because you're going to live forever, because you're not going to die... Stop living that way. There's going to be a resurrection and a life everlasting. He goes, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Don't you see the power of this hope? I mean, this is the only hope that actually can stand through death. He goes, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Not partially, not sometimes, not a little, not now and then. I mean, think about the questions we ask in the light of this hope. Do you think God would like me to tithe on my gross or my net? Doesn't that seem silly? Right? I mean, think about it. I would forgive her, but she needs to come and apologize first. Really? In light of this hope? Always. I, you know, I would give some more, but I don't really have, if I had some more time or a little extra, Paul says, no, nah, 
No, you're not living in light of this hope. Give yourself always completely to the work of the Lord. Pray unceasingly. Give unflinchingly. Love completely, recklessly. Because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It is not going to the grave with anybody. You are going to live forever and ever and ever. Amen. Now, just let me conclude with this because this is super interesting. It's not just our bodies that are going to go on and on and on, right? Remember how before in trying to explain what was happening, Paul told the Romans all of creation is groaning? It's not just us that is subject to decay. God, God gave Jesus' disciple John in his old age when he'd been in prison on the island of Patmos by the Romans, sent away. God gave him a vision of this coming day. And he wrote about that vision and he sent it back to the churches. Why? Because the churches were suffering under persecution. They were losing hope. And, they, and John wanted them to stand and labor for the Lord. And here's what John saw. He goes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. You know, it's not just the new you. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice coming from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He's going to dwell with them. You realize God's not going to be in heaven in the kingdom to come. He's going to be like with us. Hmm, kind of a Christmas song there. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he dwells with them. They'll be his people and God himself will, will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. A new you, yes, but a new earth. Don't you understand that when God created everything, he walked around those six days in Genesis and he said, oh, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. He meant it. He meant it. He's remaking all of it. It's going to be good again. In Tim Keller's book, King's Cross, there's a phrase that I love speaking about this coming day of resurrection. All things sad will become untrue. He goes, speaking about the hope of the resurrection, if you can't dance but you long to dance, in the resurrection, you'll dance perfectly. If you're lonely in the resurrection, you will have a perfect love. If you're empty in the resurrection, you will be fully satisfied. This is so cool. Ordinary life is what's going to be redeemed. There is nothing better than ordinary life except that it's always going away and falling apart. Ordinary life is food and work and chairs by the fire and hugs and dancing and mountains. This world, God loves it so much that he gave his only son, we just sang about this this morning, he gave his only son so we and the rest of this ordinary world could be redeemed and made perfect. That is what's in store for you. That's where you're going. A new heaven, a new earth, a new you. Everything new and made perfect except did you know there's one exception there's just one exception anybody in the room know sign language super interesting right it's one of the most beautiful languages but it's not spoken in addition to its ability to help the deaf in communication it has oftentimes these beautiful presentations some of the signs are logical they're easily remembered 
For example, the word fear is communicated with both hands in front of the chest, one on top of the other, fingers spread apart. The hands tremble to indicate fear. Love is communicated by crossing the arms over the heart as if you were hugging yourself. Does anybody know how you communicate Jesus in sign language? You place the middle finger of each hand into the palm of the other. What is that? It's the nail-scarred hands of Christ. Somebody said the scars of Jesus will be the only man-made thing in heaven. Remember, even when Jesus was raised from the dead, new body, new life, full of his scars. He, he told the women to look. He told Thomas to, to see and to touch. I mean, why would, why would God do that? I think for a couple of reasons. The first is I think it's going to be an eternal reminder for everybody that's in the kingdom to understand the love that God has for each and every one of us, the eternal love of God for you. It'll be written on the hands of his son for all eternity for you to see. It's going to remind us of the price Jesus paid for each of us. Maybe to remind us that there is a cost of sin so that if anybody in the new kingdom ever gets the crazy idea again to try to be God for themselves, they're only going to need to look at the hands of Christ to realize that that's really a bad idea. And then, and then there's finally this, and again, it's from the King's Cross. If you knew that this is not the only world, the only body, the only life you're ever going to have, that you'll someday have a perfect life, who cares what people do to you? You're free from ultimate anxieties in this life. So you can be brave. You can take risks. You can face the worst thing, even life in a wheelchair with joy and with hope. The resurrection means we can look forward with hope to the day our suffering is going to be gone. But it even means that we can look forward with hope to the day our suffering will be glorious. See, when Jesus shows his disciples his hands and his feet, he's showing them his scars. The last time, think this through, the last time they saw Jesus, they thought those scars were ruining their lives. The disciples thought they were on some kind of presidential campaign, that their candidate was going to win and they were going to be in his cabinet. But when they saw the nails going into his hands and his feet and the spear going inside, they assumed that those scars, those wounds destroyed their lives. And now Jesus is showing them in his resurrected body that they're still there. Why? Because now they understand that the scars, the sight and the memory of them, it increases the glory and joy for the rest of their lives. See, seeing Jesus when they were on this earth with his scars reminds them of what he did for them. That the scars they thought had ruined their lives actually saved their lives. Remembering those scars would actually help them face their own crucifixion. But on the day of the Lord, when this resurrection comes true, the day when everything is made right and new, the day that everything sad comes untrue, on that day, the same thing will happen to you and your own hurts and your own sadness. You're going to find, too, that the worst thing that ever happened to you in the end is only going to enhance your eternal delight. On that day, all of it, everything that has ever happened to you, every scar that's ever been inflicted, all of it's going to be turned inside out and you will know joy well beyond the walls of what you could imagine. The joy of your glory will be much greater for every scar you bore. So, live 
in the light of the resurrection. Live in the renewal, the promise of the renewal of this world and of yourself and live in a glorious, never-ending, joyful dance of grace. Let's stand and close in the song.